Welcome to week six of our journey through the Bible and what we're calling the story, as it is God's grand story, the story that covers all time and the story that involves every person that's ever been born or ever will be born. You are part of the story, whether you like it or not. The only question is what you're going to do in that story. The Bible is like a mural. It tells a single story from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about one thing, God's name being made known, being spread throughout the world, that every person, every woman, every man, every boy, every girl, have an opportunity to hear the name of God and in the New Testament era, the name of Jesus Christ, God incarnate himself. You can summarize the whole Bible in, in five acts. You can write them out on a napkin. It's very simple. It starts out with a garden. In that garden is Adam and Eve, and from there it moves to God creating a nation through the man of Abraham and his descendants. And after that, through Jesus Christ, his atonement on the cross, we end up with the church, which is the age that we're in now, as we, the people of God, as the church of God, with Christ as the head, continue to proclaim the same plan of God, but with Jesus as the central focus point. And the story will end in a garden city. As the new heavens and new earth come down, and God remakes everything and makes shalom for good. No more wars, no more fighting, no more arrogance, no more pride, no more racism, no more injustice. All of that will be destroyed once and for all. And the final enemy, death itself, will be destroyed as well. As we've looked at the book of Genesis, we've seen that Genesis 1 through 11, we've looked at the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. We've seen that mankind, no matter how many times God gives them an opportunity, just does not seem to choose the right path. You know this from your own life. You know this if you're a parent from your kid's life, from other students' life. We know that this is how it works. And so God introduces his plan, his promised plan, if you will, which began with Genesis chapter 12, with the promised plan of God. And as he begins to unfold that through Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph, and they end up in Egypt, and Abraham is... God has promised him that he would have the descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then we, we see that that takes a long time and much patience. And I want you to connect the story and see. Once you begin to understand the, the scriptural story, God's story, there's one sense where you'll say, well, this is a little bit boring. It's the same thing over and over. And actually, it, it really is the same thing over and over and over and over same story that took place in Abraham's life is the same story that they run through Isaac's life and Jacob's life and Joseph's life and Moses' life and Israel's life and, and your life and my life. And this idea of patience, Abraham has to wait and he has to wait and you and I, we have to wait and we have to wait. And we wonder why and we don't understand. And that's our lower story perspective, not understanding the big story perspective. And, and God moves on from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and they end up in Egypt and then we end up with Moses, and we saw with the, the map in your books that as we've traced this through, you can see on the map on the screen that if you have the, the storybook in the front, I'd ask you to, to put this in there so you can kind of visualize where the pieces are going. And the tree over on the right was, was uh, the Garden of Eden, potentially, and Abraham moving over to uh, Jerusalem, and then Joseph in the triangle moving over to Egypt, and then Moses, the M in the circle, the blue circle, moving back over. And, and now we're, we're kind of in this area, actually right where the blue area, the blue arrow, I mean, is. It, it says uh, probably uh, Kadesh Barnea on the screen. It's kind of covered up with the, with the blue arrow there. But that's actually about the area that we're still in. And we're going to be in that area for about 40 years, which for us is just going to be 
40 minutes or less because we'll cover it all today. But this is the area that God is going to continue to do the same work in. The story continues to unfold. The, the same patience, the same needing to hear from God and understanding God. And all of this is based, as we learned last week, on the idea that the relationships are first. It's, it's covenant before the commands. It's, it's God's relationship first that he puts on the table. Relationships. Without them, we, we don't have what is necessary. We don't have what is needed in order to live our life. You can't do it just by following the Ten God first had a relationship. That covenant came before the commandment. So as we look again, and I want you to kind of remember each week as we go through this, and as you reflect on your own life, this is what I have to do, guys. Things don't make sense in my life. That's the lower story. So we've got the upper and the lower story. And you've got to realize that your life is the lower story. When Jesus came, he came from the upper story, heaven, to the lower story, earth. And things on earth don't always make sense. Ecclesiastes talks about it and calls it under the sun, living under the sun. And if you're used to the, the King James verbiage or you've heard it a lot, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. That's really not the best translation. It's more frustrating and enigmatic. It's, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. It's frustrating. It's not meaningless because there's an upper story going on. God is doing something. It's just frustrating. It doesn't make sense to our lower story perspective. But this is what's going on in the story. And this morning, as, as we reflect upon what God was doing through the man Moses, just like he, he chose Abraham, and now he chose Moses, he led the people out of Egypt. It wasn't Moses. It was God. He was using Moses. It was the upper story coming down into the lower story and choosing a leader to demonstrate the power of God, the presence of God. That's what he wants, to be with his people. So as Moses leads the people out, it very quickly turns to rebellion. We saw last week that God did not come in a form that could be fashioned. So one of the Ten Commandments is not to make God into some form. You haven't seen him in a form, so don't make him into a form, because your form is going to be wrong. <coughs> of course, while Moses is on the mountain getting the commandments, what is the exact thing that people do? They make God into a form, a bull, a cow. But it's not a form, as they've ever seen. And so it does not properly reflect him. That, you know, led to chaos and crisis, and people died, and we'll have more of that today. And so... Let's see from the video that will intro what we're going to look at today in the Wilderness Wanderings. The Wilderness Wanderings is a, a long time period in, in the in the scriptural timeline, 40 years, give or take. And in your reading, it was also a little bit lengthy. If you have your, your storybooks, I will be referring to them uh, probably a few different times this morning. They largely cover uh, the book of Numbers. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is about God uh, being with his people and how they need to live a holy life. And that takes place there at, at Sinai as they're getting ready. And then Numbers is, is they set off and they're supposed to have an 11-day journey. That's about all it would have taken them. 11 days to get to Canaan. And they end up spending 40 years. So I, I don't know what the longest uh, car ride you've ever been on was. 
I don't know if you've ever been lost before or not. Um, I've been on long car rides. I've been lost. Um, I remember a few years ago, I took a group of uh, high school boys when I was over at CFCA, and we went camping. I took them to uh, the Green Swamp camping. And, um, I mean, things didn't start out good from the get-go. We didn't get out of the school parking lot, I think, till 4 or 5 o'clock. So by the time we got to... The, the place out way past Claremont, it was it was dark before we got on the trail, and we had a mile and a half or two miles of walking to get to our campsite up in the, the woods. Um, it also turned out to be uh, hunting season, and that messed some things up for us on the next day. But anyway, it was dark before we started. I don't think we got to our campsite till uh, 1.30 in the morning, and uh, we were lost for about two hours. So um, if you've ever been hiking in the woods, you know that they, they have trails and they mark them on the trees. They paint them. You know, there's an orange trail, a blue pit, uh, trail, etc. Um, but at night, uh, you can't see them. So you have to use a flashlight, and uh, if you miss the tree, then you quickly get off course. And so that happened more than once to us, and uh, we ended up wandering around for a couple hours. So... Um, that was bad enough. I would not want to wander for, for uh, 40 years. So at about one third, and we were all carrying about 50 pounds of gear apiece. Um, I had way too much gear with us. So uh, the boys didn't even want to eat when we got there, but I was like, whatever. I'm having steak. I brought steak. And so we didn't eat until about 2.30 in the morning. So, yeah, being lost, it's not too much fun. You know, maybe you've been lost in a, in a car ride. I remember when I was coming from, uh, I think, Missouri to here, and I was talking on the phone, and I missed a, an exit, so I'm in a big U-Haul with a, a trailer behind me with my vehicle, and so, yeah, all these extra miles, and you have to turn around and come back. It's no fun, but that's what the Israelites were doing constantly. The timeline that we're talking about for our journey is the same as, as it was uh, last week. So we're right in this area with Moses still, the 1526 era uh, B.C., all right, and leading up to Joshua at 1406. So we, we got this 50-plus years that we're dealing with here. And the, the wanderings, if you look on this next map here, you can see this little circle, okay? Yeah, and it says the book of Numbers, and that circle with number six is actually works perfectly because we're on week six, even though that's not what it means on this map. But um, just go with it. So the circling, yeah, that's because what were they doing? They were going in circles. You know when you go in circles, you don't get where you're supposed to go. You, you never get there. But see, God had a plan for them, and they resisted. And God has a plan for you. <coughs> and you resist. Maybe you're not resisting today, but you've resisted in the past probably, and you'll resist in the future probably because we're really not too wise sometimes. In fact, we really have a problem. We have a hearing problem, you and I do. And this hearing problem is is more severe than you and I think it is. I was listening to uh, NPR the other day, going to or from one of my jobs, and they were talking about the, the hair in your ear. I'm not sure that's a conversation that you have all the time, right? The hair in your ear? That's what, that's what enables you to hear. And um, if, if you kill those hairs, like by being in, like, loud concerts for all the time, then uh, you go deaf because the hair does not uh, regrow. Well, 
once it's gone, it's gone. So you damage those hairs, and they can be damaged just by a one-time huge sound, or by a repetition of lots of sounds, which is why constantly having those earbuds in your ears, yeah, that's, that's not a good idea. So anyway, um, they're at the point now where there's a, uh, a group of people who have been playing around, so to speak, with uh, stem cells from your intestines. And see, so your intestines, I guess, they continually grow. They repair themselves and renew themselves all the time. And so they have figured out how to grow hairs in the stem cells of your intestines. So um, 18 months from now, we'll see if this has worked out. They've already done tests on animals, and they're supposed to start tests on people now. And they will be able to just uh, take a needle and inject some of that into the inner part of your ear. They already do that same thing. Like if you have a virus in your ear, then they do that. And um, you'll be able to regrow the hair in your ear. You've probably never thought about this before, but and that'll let you hear again. Do you have a question? about hearing, so I, I don't know about that. Um, so, the, um, but actually, since you said that, the answer actually is yes, because I know a pastor who went completely blind and not So, um, anyways, so the hearing, all right? But here's the deal. Even with all your ear hairs, you still have a hard time hearing. Because it's not just a physical thing. You see, sometimes Melissa and I can be in, in the same room together. We can be in the kitchen. And um, my mind, I'm very analytical, so I, I think about things all the time pretty much. My mind kind of is never off. And so there's times when Melissa's talking to me, but I've started to either daydream or think about something else. And so I don't hear a word she might be saying because I'm in the room, but I'm not in the room. That's also how sometimes I chop my fingers with a knife. But So, are you with me? You're in the room, but you're not in the room. And that's what's going on. You see, we have a hearing problem, and we need our hearing fixed. Yeah, we probably, Darius, have a seeing problem, too, and a vision problem. But today, we got to talk about our hearing problem. As the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness all the time, the book of Numbers is the book that covers the majority of this. And I really don't know why it hasn't been made into a movie yet because Numbers and Judges, I mean, there's so many good stories in those books. I know the first nine chapters get you bogged down if you try to read it because it's filled with genealogy. So, um, you know, skip that and come back to it some other time. Read the book of Numbers. Amazing stories. In the book of Numbers, <coughs> they spend most of their time wandering around, 38 years, okay, wandering around there. And God is doing something there. And, and here's what we need to understand. If you look at your, your storybook, this is not going to be up on the screen. So if you brought your storybooks with you, uh, open them up to me or with me to um, uh, page number... Page 71, we pick up. And of course, th this is it's a story book here, and it, it comes out of Scripture, um, but they don't have the whole book of Numbers in here for you. Because on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant. The Israelites 
set out from the desert of Sinai, and they traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. And they set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. So who's leading them through the desert? God is leading them through the desert. The cloud. Okay? This, the same cloud and pillar that, that led them out of Egypt is leading them through the wilderness. They only move when God moves. When the scriptures say that God's presence went with his people, his presence was with the people. He was leading them. They only moved when God moved. If God rested there, they stayed there. He continues on as they're following God uh, through this process. And as the people follow God, his goal is to bless them. His goal is to bring them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land in Canaan where they will flourish, they will prosper, they will reproduce, they will be fruitful and multiply, fulfilling the mandate that was given and the blessing that was given to Adam and Eve back in Genesis in the garden. But what do we find right away? If you're with me on page 71 at the bottom, it says, Now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. Now, your hearing and my hearing might not be the best, but God's hearing is 100% perfect. He hears you, I would say while he's asleep, but he doesn't sleep. He hears you in heaven when you're here on earth. He hears you no matter what. In the book of Kings, there's this awesome story. I, I won't tell you the whole thing, but the, the phrase is mentioned that he, he knows what's going on in, in your closed doors, in your bedroom, in your bathroom. God hears all. He knows all. You cannot hide it from him. So the people complain about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the place was called Berah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Now, God's warning them. This is just the beginning. Fire comes and it hits the outskirts, the outside of the camp. Okay, it's scorched around them. And Moses intercedes. If you read through Numbers, I want you to notice the intercession theme that appears there. Moses intercedes for the people. Moses and Aaron intercede for the people. Moses intercedes for the people again. Moses intercedes for the people again. God intercedes. There's a point where Moses wants to be done with them. Jesus intercedes for us. The Bible says he sits at the right hand of the Father. He continually intercedes in the book of Hebrews. Think back. Abraham interceded for Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah when God was going to judge I don't know if you realize that the power that you have is intercession. I don't, truth be told. Prayer is a powerful thing. It goes where you cannot go. Moses intercedes for the people, and they're not destroyed. Continues on on page 72. It says, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Little snotty-nosed brats. That's what they are, right? They're complaining. And guess what? You and I have all been those little snotty-nosed brats, right? You open the fridge and complain, Ah, we don't want that again. Same thing, same thing, same thing. Yeah, they ate manna for 40 years. What was manna? Something they'd never seen before. It was bread made in heaven that showed up on the ground every day and they picked it up and ate it. So God makes this special course. You've never had it before. 
But yeah, the tire of it real quick. So, the wailing, the crying, complaining, that's what continues. The whole cycle going on, the whole circling, that's what they're doing nonstop. Welcome to Family Life this week. I'm Michelle Hill. The president Moses of Family Life is Dennis Reed. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the descent from the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. And he said, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden? Moses said, What, what have I done, God, that i got to put up with these people? Teachers feel this way. Sometimes. Parents feel this way. Sometimes. Pastors feel this way. Sometimes. Everybody feels this way. Sometimes. The bosses feel this way. Sometimes. Okay? Anybody that has to work with other people feels this way, at least sometimes, right? What have, what have I done that I have been given these people for, right? The Lord says to Moses in the bottom of 72, says, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. You saw it in the video. Do you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he supernaturally, miraculously brings all these quails. And the people eat meat until they can't deal with it. They continuously reject what God He continues on. He tells them what he's going to do. He talks about how they've rejected him. This is top, top, top of page 73. He says, you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him. When you complain and grumble against God, you're rejecting you're rejecting God. We don't think of it that way. That's how God sees it. He's saying, I'm here in your midst. I go before you. Cloud by day, fire by night. I lead you. I'm in your midst. The presence of God here with you. And you are not satisfied with what I have given you. You have rejected me. I'm not good enough for you. That's what's going on. So Moses is there and Moses continuously intercedes and then he asks about how in the world is this going to happen God how are you going to provide this much food for these people and notice on page 73 the Lord answers Moses says is the Lord's arm too short now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you you've heard the phrase the long arm of, of the law or the long arm of whatever that means they have power okay God's arm is not short God's going to reach anywhere God has the power to do anything how could you think after I parted the Red Sea that I could not provide this? I could do anything. And then the scriptures tell us how he did that. Shortly after this, they complained again and they grumbled because Moses married a Cushite woman. Prejudice and racism was alive well before we ever existed, guys. It continues, unfortunately. And here is where that phrase that we find about Moses that troubles some people. It says, Moses was the most humble man. It's in this context where Miriam and Aaron are, are uh, disrespecting him because of his wife. And that's where it says he was very humble. Why? Because he didn't retaliate. See, he did not seek out revenge against them, even though they were his own family. You'd think they would have a little more respect. But no, they wanted leadership. They wanted to take over what he was already doing. They wanted to be more powerful and influential. They weren't happy with their situation, with their place that God had put them. Second and third command wasn't enough. They wanted to be number one. God says to them that they need to learn a little respect, so he humbles them. And on page 74 of your reading, he says, I speak face-to-face -face with Moses. 
you should have some respect. You should have some reverence for me. And the anger of the Lord burned, and he made Miriam's hand leprous for seven days. He shamed her. Now, what is going on all through this? Because this is just the beginning of it. This is just the intro. I'll tell you what's going on. They're, they're being taught by God. You need to learn to trust God. That's what Numbers is about, learning to trust God. All of these events that happen in there are about learning to trust God. They, they hear, but they don't. Hearing in the, in the Old Testament, hearing in the Bible is about listening and obeying. To hear means that you, you do it. If you don't do it, you haven't really heard. Learning to fear God is the theme all through this book. The Bible and the book of Numbers. And each of these aspects, okay, whether it's on this journey in the wilderness or the journey in your own life, God is trying to teach you and he's trying to teach me, just like he was trying to teach them, that we need to hear the voice of God and heed it. That we need to trust God. Think about the aspects of the situations I've just mentioned already. Um, where, where's the meat going to come from? Uh, how are we going to get away from Egypt? Who's going to sustain us in the wilderness? Every single one of these, the answer is who? God's going to. And so each time, it should have been one more example of how you can trust God. Because he took care of me here, and he'll take care of me here, he'll take care of me here, because he took care of me here. Every one of these is really the same story. It continues through here, and we don't have time, obviously, to read every one of these stories, or even to reiterate all of the aspects of this chapter, which I hope that you read this during the week. If you didn't, I encourage you to read it this, uh, this coming week. So they continue on throughout this whole uh, section of Numbers, and God is trying to teach them to learn to trust him, to fear him. And that's a theme that we're going to have to explain a little bit further. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35 and 36, which is also at the bottom of page 84 in the storybook. As the story moves along, and it moves out of Numbers, it moves into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the renewing of the covenant. Because here's what happens in the book of Numbers. The old generation, they were at least 20 years old and older, they die. And the new generation gets ready to go in the land. So Numbers, this whole circling about, is 40 years of killing off the old generation and trying to teach the new generation how to trust God, how to fear God. Why do they get killed off? Because they didn't trust God. See, it's the bookends on everything. When the two spies that you saw in the video, okay, Caleb and Joshua, they say, no, we can take the land. But the other eight, the other ten spies said, no, we can't. There's giants in the land, and the land will eat us. It'll devour us. And so God, I guess he's funny sometimes, he makes a joke on that and says, you're worried about being devoured by the land? Okay, you'll be devoured by the land in the wilderness. Not by the land in the promised land. The promised land ain't going to devour you. I'm giving it to you giving it to you. You understand what I mean? I will drive them out. I'll give it to you. No, we don't think we can take it. I think we're afraid. We're afraid of the people. We're afraid. No, we don't want to go, God. Okay, fine. You stay there and you all die. I'll take your kids in. And so those 40 years, he didn't just torture them. What he did was he spent 40 years trying to teach them 
to trust him. And unfortunately, the bottom line is that the next generation didn't have much more trust than the first generation. And you can see that through the way the story unfolds. In Deuteronomy 4, 35 and 6, it says, You were shown all these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. Now, remember that phrase from Exodus? That's the phrase that is repeated throughout the book of Exodus so that the Pharaoh would know that there is a God, so the Egyptians would know there is a God, and so even the Israelites would know that Yahweh is the one true God. So here it is again in Deuteronomy. You, okay, the new generation, okay, your parents have all died. Remember why your parents died, okay? Rebellion, not hearing God, not trusting God. You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 36 says, he let you hear his voice from heaven. Remember, don't be deaf. He let you hear his voice from heaven to instruct you. That's a key word. Circle it, underline it, exercise it, highlight it, burn it in your brain. He showed you his great fire on earth, and you heard his words from the fire. Okay, well, Moses knows about hearing words from the fire, right? Moses heard from the burning bush. That's how this story started, right? When God chose Moses, so God speaks out of the fire. Now, God says he's given them instruction. We're going to have to spend a little bit of time breaking down what this word instruction means. So, instruction. <clears throat> the word in Hebrew, I think it's on, is it on the next slide there, Mark? Let's look at 8.5, and then we'll come to the Hebrew terms. In 8.5, it says, keep in mind that the Lord your God has been uh, disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. So God says he wants to teach them. They're to be learners. They're to hear his word, and he wants to discipline them. All right, so I want to look at a couple of Hebrew terms, all right? Now, I'm doing this for a reason, and that is because we need to understand a little bit about God's process of education. Um, he might not educate the way you like, but since he's God, it doesn't matter. He picks the mode and the method of education. When we look at the scriptures, the idea of discipline generally involves someone being trained to follow the way that is right or someone being corrected in order to bring that person away from an, a bad behavior and back into correct behavior. You'll see this all through the scriptures. So as God is speaking, as Moses is speaking to the people and renewing the covenant, that's what Deuteronomy is about, as they get ready to go into the promised land, part of what he's saying is, listen, what you've been seeing for 40 years was so that you would learn to fear me. I was trying to teach you something, that you can actually trust me. To fear God has a, a several things bound up in it. You cannot figure out what fear God means by looking at the word fear and looking at God and put them together. That's not what the word means. Just like you can't figure out what butterfly means by looking up what butter means and fly and put them together. That's not what a butterfly is. It's got nothing to do with a stick of butter or a fly. The only commonality there is it does fly, like a fly, right? It's got wings. But that's not what a butterfly is. So that's not what the fear of God is either, all right? The fear of God involves... Uh, respect. It involves a level of awe. It involves love. It involves, in the, in the Bible, a covenant co uh, relationship aspect. All of these are together. All right? There is a fear aspect. There is this reverential aspect, okay? He is the one that contorts you. He is the one that drowned the Egyptians, right? So there should be a level of um, acknowledging who he is, 
right? He's not just my, hey, yo, my bro. No, okay? He's God, all right? He created you. He can, he can claim your yoga bro, okay? So God is all of these things together, all right? So the love has, has got to be understood as part of this whole thing. And this faithfulness to the relationship that who started? That God started. You didn't start the relationship. God started the relationship. Then he gives the Ten Commandments, some of the rules, so that the relationship uh, stays with some level of, of shalom or peace, if you will, and that amongst each other we would. All right? So these words, okay? So the first word here, uh, yasar, to instruct, and the other word, muser, to instruction, okay? These are the words that are used primarily. There's a couple others, but they're primarily used in the context we're talking about, in Deuteronomy. They're also used in Proverbs. They're, they're used all through the scriptures to talk about this idea of teaching or discipline. We'll get to Hebrews in a minute, Hebrews 12, but there's a connection with that as well. As God is leading his people and his presence is there, he's trying to teach them something. What him? To fear him or to trust him. That's what he's trying to teach them. Now, I don't know how many times you've failed the test. I don't know how many times you might have to take your driver's exam. I've heard of people three, four, five. I think I've heard nine. But I, I don't think 40 years. Okay, he's trying to teach them this for 40 years. Think about Abraham. It took Abraham at least. 25 plus years to learn to fully trust God, right? It was not until Genesis 22 when God says to offer your son Isaac that then God says, now I know, another key word, no, now I know that you fully trust or fear me. Why? Because of your actions. You've held nothing back. You've done exactly what I said. You trusted me completely. God know that you trust him? If you obey him completely, he knows you trust him. That's Disobedience demonstrates that we don't trust God. And that was a continuous problem throughout the Israelite journey. Discipleship fundamentally involved all of your being, not just your mind or your intellect. All the biblical terms used to convey the concept of discipleship involve more than just academic engagement. Moses made clear that the teachings of the law were meant to result in obedience to what it said rather than just intellectual acceptance. See that in Deuteronomy 4 5. The overlap between instruction and discipline in the Hebrew terms, Yasar, for instance, and Musar, which are on the screen, illustrate this purpose well. Several terms that can be used to describe punishment or chastisement can also be used to describe the process of instruction. To be disciplined is to learn how to act properly. And what God is doing is both disciplining, there's a level of punishment, and instruction. He is teaching through the punishment. Or, sometimes punishment's not the best Translation depends on the, the context. Same word. He's disciplining through the situation. He's teaching through the discipline. So, 
discipline and punishment. I had a conversation this past week about this exact thing um, prior to me doing most of the studying. Um, we like to separate the two completely sometimes. Uh, but that's really not the case in Scripture. The idea of, of being a disciple is very much uh, connected to this whole thing. Chastisement is part of this whole process. And so as God is working to reveal himself in history, and he's showing himself, he's showing himself so that you will know who he is, that he is Yahweh, the only true God, and that you will completely fear and trust him. Now, if you learn that quick, way to go. You're a wise person. You don't learn that quick, not so good. You're slow, maybe a fool. And that's what's going on. The Israelites demonstrate foolishness, folly in the Proverbs. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then it talks about instruction. These are the same words. The fear of the Lord, and then you got instruction. They're all tied up together. God is trying to teach them repeatedly through this whole process who he is and why they should behave the way he wants them to behave. The, the discipline of Yahweh should not be taken negatively. For the hardships in the wilderness, suffering as education basically, the school of hard knocks, right, were balanced by his miraculous provisions, both designed to test what was in their heart, whether you would keep his commandments. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 8.2. It's a test to see what's in your heart. What do you do when you run out of water? Complain and grumble? Or go to God? You guys go to the fridge, I know. Okay? Wilderness, the Israelites. When they run out of water, what do they do? So what he's saying is this. Okay? It should have been an 11-day journey. Okay? You send the spies out. You go to Canaan. Let's take it. Nope, let's not take it. I don't think we can do it. Okay, that's rebellion. You don't trust me. I said you could take it. I'll give it to you. No, I don't think we can. Okay, you don't trust me. Okay, I need to teach you to trust me. How do I teach you to trust me? Well, you need some discipline. Okay, so fine. Let's go three days journey. I'm going to take away all your water. No water. Okay, how are you going to act? Okay, we're going to cry and moan and throw a fit. Okay, Moses is going to intercede. Where's the water? Okay, I'll tell you what. Make the rocks bring forth water. All right, there's your water. Oh, yay, hooray. That's supposed to get you to trust me. Oh, we're hungry now. Okay, I'll make up a whole new meal for you. No one's ever had it before. I'll give it to you in the morning. Uh, did you like that? Good, good. I'll give it to you every day now, but not on the 7th. Don't go get it on the 7th. There won't be any. Oh, why are you getting out of your tent on the 7th? I told you there wouldn't be any. Don't you ever listen? Constantly, constantly, constantly. What is he trying to get him to see? Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. If I say stop, stop now. If I say jump, jump now. If I say go, go now. If I say be quiet, be quiet now. If I say offer your son, your one and only son, offer him now. That's what's going on. If I say you can take the giants in the land, you can take the giants in the land because I'll give them to you. If I say go to a foreign country and preach the gospel, go because I'll be with you and I'll take care of you. If I say go into your school of two or 3,000 people and be a witness for me, tell them about Jesus, go because I will be with you. If I say be a light to the nations, wherever you are, Orlando or anywhere else, 
do it because I will be with you. If I say, learn the word, know it like you know anything else, know it better than you know baseball stats and football stats, know it better than you know the latest Harry Potter book, know it better than you know the quotes from some favorite movie of yours, then go do it. Because I am God. And I'm trying to teach you to trust me. You don't trust him because you don't know him. I don't trust him because I don't know him. You don't trust him because you don't know him. Israel don't trust him because Israel don't know him. What does God say in the book of Isaiah to his people? He says, the ox knows me as its master, but you, my own people, don't know me. And that's why they don't trust him. You don't trust because you don't know. So get to know him. Get in the word. Get in the book. The discipline of Yahweh is not to be taken negatively. So the hardships in the wilderness were balanced by his miraculous provision designed to test what was in their hearts. It's a test, people. Are you going to pass it or fail it? By their hunger as well as by the manna which he provided, they were to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of God. Now that's quoted by Jesus. He quotes that in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 when he's tested, uh, tempted by the devil. So who drove him to the wilderness? It says after his baptism, the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Well, that's interesting because God drove the Israelites into the wilderness to be tested. It's the exact same thing. Israel was God's firstborn son. Remember, Egypt, the Pharaoh, wouldn't let the firstborn son, Israel, go. Jesus is God's firstborn son. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus does right what Israel couldn't do. Jesus does right what you and I don't do right. Live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What does that mean? Well, why did Jesus say that? Because these 40 days, Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness. And Satan, the adversary, the accuser, says, turn the stones into bread. You're hungry. Yeah, I know I'm hungry. But it's okay. I'll trust my father because at the right time he'll give me food. I don't need to abuse my powers for selfish decisions. I need to trust my father. At the right time, he'll give me the food. Just like he gave the Israelites their manna. The Pharisees thought Moses gave them manna. Jesus corrected it. No, it was God. And then Jesus says, and I am the manna, the bread of life that comes down from heaven. You're looking at it. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 5, uses the comparative expression, as a man disciplines his son is not without covenantal and theological significance. The point here is that the whole point of God disciplining Israel in the wilderness is because Israel is his son. He created a covenant with them. You remember before the Ten Commandments? God said, if, if you'll do this, I'll be your God. You'll be my people, and I'll give you the promised land. And all the people said what? Yes, we will do it. Lied. The theological basis for an earthly father's discipline over his son is in the covenant, that covenant relationship. So discipline gives assurance of, of sonship. You read in the Bible, you're, you're like, um, a father disciplines his son. If he doesn't discipline his son, he hates him. And a kid reads that and he's like, what are you talking about? He doesn't hate me because he doesn't discipline me. In fact, I think that's love. You're like, no, you don't understand. The goal of discipline is education so that you learn the way of life. 
What's the way of life? The way of life is God's way. Psalm 1, there's only two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked leads to death. The way of the righteous leads to life. So discipline gives assurance of sonship. Discipline was administered in many ways. Proverbs 22, 15 speaks of the rod of correction. We like to say, spare the rod, spoil the child. But the rod is only one form of correction. The majority of the uses of this idea of correction is words. All through the scriptures, God is constantly speaking. Yahweh is speaking to his people to educate and correct them, to get them to trust him. Way more than he is spanking them metaphorically. More specifically, the religious character of Musar involves an association with the fear of Yahweh, the fear of God, and humbling yourself as a way of life. It's a way of life. You don't humble yourself one time. You learn to humble yourself continuously and constantly, and that's how you live your life, in humility before the Lord. He said jump last week, and I jumped. He says jump tomorrow, I jump. Like he says sit down today, I sit down. Learning to walk in the fear and the love of the Lord. Suffering is God's mean of education. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, we find the same thing. In Hebrews 12, the first 12 verses deals with this entire concept. Let's look at what it says. It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. So first off, if you know there's some sin in your life, dump it. So don't even move on. Just dump it. Stop. Dump it. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So don't quit. All right? Keeping our eyes on who? Jesus. Okay? The source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame. So you don't quit because who didn't quit? Jesus didn't quit, and so you don't quit. <coughs> he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Now, here we go. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so you won't grow weary and lose heart. What's the way to keep from getting depressed and quitting? Consider the life of Jesus. Okay? He didn't quit. And struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, and you have forgotten the exhortation... This is where it connects to the Old Testament and Israel and being a child of God. You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. This is a quote. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint. Don't pass out when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes. Now don't change the slide yet. He punishes every son you receive. I want you to notice the parallelism here. Okay? He disciplines and he punishes. Talking about the same thing. He disciplines the one he loves. He punishes every son he receives. Keep going. Endure suffering as discipline. Suffering is education. Suffering is instruction. Suffering is learning. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? Again, all these words for discipline is the same thing we're talking about back here in the Old Testament. If you're without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. Okay? What seemed good to them. Okay, but God knows what's good all the time, right? So that means His discipline is always going to be what? Perfect. Okay? Fathers sometimes discipline erroneously. Because sometimes we actually are wrong about what we think is good. But not so with God. He does it for our benefit so that we can share in what? His holiness. Do you want to share in the holiness of God? Then you need to be patient. You need to be learned. You need to be disciplined. No discipline seemed enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees. Let's put the regular phrase back up there. So, God's discipline is to teach you to trust Him. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. And were starting to fall away from the faith. They were quitting on God. And what does the author of Hebrews do? He goes back to what happened in the wilderness of what God was doing to the Israelites hundreds of years before. And says, listen, you need to learn a lesson from them. You need to learn to trust God. Learn to fear God. And that's the same thing with you and I need today. We need new ears. We need our hearing checked. We need our vision checked. We need to get back and listen to what God is telling us. If you were to go through and look at Deuteronomy, I just checked this in the English. I didn't check the Hebrew. But I checked this morning in the English. The phrase is, be careful, keep and there's one other word. Be careful. Keep. Oh, and carefully. You know how many times that phrase occurs in the Holman? 100 times. 100 times. The majority of those occurrences are related to keeping and being careful to keep God's obey his covenant. Remember, the book is about renewing the covenant. New generation of people. Their parents all died. Imagine if your parents all died. In the last 40 years, we're on a journey together. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, 40 years later. Are we there yet? Right? But your parents all died along the way. And now finally, oh, it's right there. We can almost touch it. It's right there. We're going to go. Tomorrow we're going to go. And you got the renewal of the covenant. And a hundred times, be careful, be careful, be careful. Why? Because your parents all died. Because they weren't careful. You can't live your life any way you want, guys. You've got to live carefully. In the New Testament, there's a passage that has the word circumspect. Live circumspectly. Live carefully. Be diligent. 
Father, you call us to a high calling. But you enable us. You give us your power and your strength. If we would simply humble ourselves and trust you. Moses was called a humble man because he didn't seek out revenge and vengeance. Instead, he went before your throne on his face, interceding for the people. He so wanted them to be part of your family that he was even willing, if possible, it appears, like the Apostle Paul, to have himself be thrown out. Oh, God, give us hearts like that. Give us a desire to follow after you. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to heed and obey. Let us not be wayward, rebellious children that die in the wilderness. But might we be the leaders of Joshua and Caleb, who had the fear of the Lord, who trusted you, like Phineas, who stayed the plague, Lord. Might we be leaders of the youth? Forgive us. Falling short. There's people here today that haven't had their sins forgiven, been washed by the blood. God, might you draw them to yourself? Might they realize that by calling out to you, asking you to forgive them of their sins, making you king of their lives, and being willing to hear and obey what you say, they can have a whole new life, a whole new purpose, a whole new plan. For those of us that are Christians, God, let us not grow weary in well-doing. Let's take the example of Jesus. Let's be willing to endure the suffering, the learning, the school of hard knocks, that we might come to fully fear you, to fully love you, to fully obey you in all areas of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.